Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his fascinating and painstakingly researched new book, Messianic Ideas and Movements in Sunni Islam, the noted scholar of Islam, Johannan Friedman, details the religious thought and political movements of multiple actors who made messianic claims in pre-modern and modern Islam, spanning sites including South Asia, North Africa, and the Sudan. Over the course of this book, we learn extensively about a range of less-known intellectual traditions in Arabic, Persian, and Urdu on questions of messianism and apocalypse in Muslim thought and history. Centered on the lives, messianic claims, and aspirations, as well as the tensions and contradictions, hovering over some of the most prominent Muslim actors across time and space, Friedman highlights with glistening brilliance the importance of messianism to Sunni Islam. Throughout the book, Friedman unleashes his signature prowess of presenting unexpected, finely grained, and yet eminently accessible readings of an encyclopedic reservoir of difficult texts and sources. Here now is my conversation with Professor Johannan Friedman. Welcome, uh, Professor uh, Friedman, uh, to New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. Uh, we really are uh, privileged and honored to have you join our podcast uh, to discuss this wonderful uh, new book and a really exciting and thrilling new book um, that we will get into in a moment. But we have a tradition, uh, Johanan, on our uh, podcast that our first question is always biographical. So could you share with our listeners a bit briefly how you became a scholar of Islam? Yes, I could do that. Uh, I came to Israel uh, in 1949 uh, from Slovakia. I was born in Slovakia. Uh, When I came to Israel, uh, I started my high school uh, studies. I was then 13 years old, and I chanced upon a wonderful teacher of Arabic whose name was Meir Yaakov Kister. He was a high school teacher in those days in a high school in Haifa, the Reali School, and uh, he convinced his students that Arabic is a very important subject, and he was a very charismatic person. So many of his students in high school eventually became professors of Arabic and Islamic studies in various Israeli universities. He was quite a unique gentleman. It was a very unlikely choice for me. You know, coming from uh, Slovakia, it was not... um, But uh, his charisma prevailed over all this. So I finished my high school in 1954 
And um, in 1956, I started my studies in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies at the Hebrew University. I did an um, MA thesis on the Arab poet Abu Lala al Ma'ari, a heretic. He was, um, so everybody says, and it is even true that he was in some ways a heretic. I finished my MA studies in 1962, and I received a scholarship uh, to go to McGill to study with Wilfred uh, Cantwell Smith, whom you must know. And um, I did my PhD studies at McGill University. I finished them with a thesis on Sheikh Ahmad uh, Sirhindi, and this was published in 1971 by, uh, McGill, by McGill University Press. Um, in 1966, I returned to the Hebrew University as a lecturer, and I started teaching there, and uh, I am still teaching, though I am retired, but I volunteer a course uh, at the Hebrew University. In the first 20 years, I dealt mainly with Islam in India. And uh, uh, during this period, I published several articles on the topic and also uh, the book on Sheikh Ahmad Sirhindi and the book on the Ahmadis, which is entitled Prophecy Continuous and was published by uh, California University uh, Press. Um, uh, after that, I moved back to uh, classical Islam, and uh, the result of this return was the book on tolerance and coercion in the Islamic tradition. Uh, excuse me. Uh, ah, this is uh, tolerance and coercion uh, in the Islamic tradition. Um, and uh, I also translated a volume of Tabari's uh, history. And then I moved um, to this topic of um, messianic ideas and movements in uh, Sunni Islam. Um, now, would you like to ask now a question or should I continue to describe the book? I'll, I'll let's jump into the book. Um, so, as a first question on the book, um, the first chapter is really fascinating, and it talks about Jesus, and 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 the, the two main figures are Jesus and Dajjal. But you show in your uh, chapter the main argument, as I read it, was how over time uh, the status of Jesus as Mahdi was downplayed, was underplayed, and you show in very interesting ways how that happened, why that happened. I wanted to focus on that aspect of, uh, you know, Jesus as Mahdi. Why was it downplayed and how was it downplayed eventually in Islamic thought? Yes, so uh, Jesus, in, in classical hadith, Jesus is part of the apocalyptic drama. There are a few heroes in this drama. One is Jesus, who is the positive figure. 
Then we have the Dajjal, who is the villain of the piece, and we have uh, the Mahdi. Now, in very early classical hadith, in some collections, the personality of Jesus and the personality of the Mahdi were uh, identical. And there is a hadith saying, Lal Mahdi illa Isa. Lal Mahdi illa Isa. Now, there is um, a problem here which was elucidated by Professor David Cook of Rice University. And he said in his major work on uh, Islamic apocalypticism that it was not convenient for the Muslims to have Jesus as a hero of the apocalyptic drama because, as Cook says, he was also a god, I quote, a god of another faith. Now, as a result of this, most probably, the um, figure of Jesus was dissociated from the figure of the Mahdi. And in most collections, certainly in the later collections, we have the idea that um, Jesus will pave the way for the Mahdi, but he is not the Mahdi himself. Now, paving the way for the Mahdi is um, described in a way which is which must be very surprising to um, a Christian or Western audience because Jesus is described there as a very pugnacious figure. Uh, he is a fighting leader who, who comes in order to destroy Judaism and Christianity and pave the way in this way for the Mahdi because after this successful conflict with Judaism and Christianity, uh, Islam is uh, uh, the sole religion, and um, then the way is clear for the coming of the Mahdi, who will, of course, establish an ideal uh, rule on the earth, will um, replace injustice uh, with justice, will uh, provide everyone with wonderful economic conditions, and um, uh, this is the this is the main, you know, the chart of what happens during the apocalyptic drama. I, I would only like to add that, from a polemical point of view, it must have been excellent for the Muslim polemicists against Christianity when they could produce traditions according to which of all people Jesus will be the one who will inflict the ultimate defeat of, uh, the, on the Christian uh, religion. And uh, we have to understand that much of this literature is related to interreligious polemics. And therefore, I suppose that this was quite important for the Muslims to have such a description of Jesus. Incidentally, um, there are many traditions according to which all prophets from Nuh 
who Al-Masih were Muslims. And it is said explicitly about Abraham in the Quran, Makanam. Um, he was uh, neither a Jew nor a Christian, but a Hanif Muslim, according to the Quran. But this is expanded in the traditional literature to all prophets who, in a certain sense, were uh, Muslims, though they operated before the coming of the Prophet Muhammad and the emergence of Islam. Now, moving to the next uh, chapter on Ibn Tumar, it's a really interesting uh, chapter. And I mean, each of your chapters is so detailed and so rich with uh, incredible analysis that I will focus on one specific aspect from each uh, chapter uh, to keep things specific. I really was fascinated by your analysis of uh, Ibn Tumar, uh, his theological uh, writings or, you know, thought and his conceptions of usul al-deen, you know, principles of religion, faith, etc. Uh, so could you give our listeners a sense of how he made a case for uh, uh, being uh, Mahdi and what kind of a theological um, discourse uh, uh, was behind his argument uh, for uh, the uh, status of being a Mahdi? The, the various Mahdis whom I discussed in the book have been appointed, quote-unquote, in very different ways. And the appointment, if I may use this uh, term, of um, Ibn Tumart is very simple. A few of his uh, acquaintances said that uh, the classical traditions about the Mahdi fit only him and don't fit anybody else. And they said, you are the Mahdi. Now, this is um, very simple, as you can see. But the main, main um, argument of Ibn Tumart was about uh, theology. And in this is probably the o only one of the four who emphasized so greatly issues of theology, and mainly the issue of um, divine attributes and what is their uh, nature. Now, he introduced the Ash'ari views on theology into the Maghreb, into uh, North uh, Africa. And uh, one of the one of the additional one of the additional um, elements in his um, in his expositions was the severe criticism of the previous of the previous uh, dynasty, the, the dynasty of the Murabitun, whom he accused of being anthropomorphists. Now, this is um, very easy to accuse people of being anthropomorphists because everybody, of course, uses the language of the Quran. And the Quran describes Allah with various features and uh, if you understand them literally, then you must be, you can be accused of anthropomorphism. The other main element 
of his um, activities was the criticism of the previous dynasty for their attire. The Murabitun, the dynasty which um, um, even Tumar toppled, um, this dynasty um, had a custom according to which the men veiled their faces while the women uh, were bare-faced, did not veil their face. And uh, even too much so in this a grave, a grave transgression against um, Islamic uh, customs. And he did whatever he could to abolish this custom and he severely criticized the Al-Murabitun for, um, uh, for behaving in this way. Uh, I must say that in the Al-Murabitun dynasty, the uh, standing of women was very high and I couldn't really explain exactly how did this peculiar attire come into being, but it must be related somehow to the uh, strong position of women in the dynasty. Next, uh, we turn to the next uh, chapter. Now, Yohanan, I was wondering if you could, for our listeners, very briefly introduce who is Muhammad Jaunpuri for some of our listeners who may not be familiar uh, with this 14th century Indian figure. And from this chapter, I was really interested in ways in which uh, this particular uh, movement brought together asceticism and uh, a certain emphasis on uh, a warrior-like uh, masculinity. And you make a point throughout the chapter, but especially towards the end, of how its ideals and the kind of discourses that it propounded uh, was quite at odds with the actual uh, empirical life of this movement on the ground. So if you could talk about that disconnect also, in addition to talking about how did Muhammad uh, John Puri go about making his claim uh, to being a Mahdi? Yes, so uh, Muhammad John Puri uh, was born in the middle uh, of the 15th century and his uh, biographies speak about a very gifted boy. Uh, we are told that he memorized the Quran at the age of seven and that he finished the curriculum of Hadith, Fiqh, Quran, etc. at the age of 12. We even hear that some of his contemporaries gave him the title of Asadul Ulama, uh, even as he was still a child. Now, it is very interesting to say that we don't know very much about Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri between the age of 12 and the age and the, his late 30s when he claimed uh, to be uh, the Mahdi. And I spoke throughout the book about the attempts of all the Mahdis to create an affinity between themselves and the Prophet Muhammad. Now, when you do this affinity and you take into account the prevalent 
though probably not historical idea that Muhammad was an illiterate, suddenly the um, learning which Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri acquired when he was a young child suddenly became an embarrassment. And the embarrassment had somehow to be solved. And we are told in the biographies that God cleansed the brain of Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri of all the uh, external knowledge, as they uh, call it, uh, which he uh, studied in his youth in order to make him as similar as possible uh, to the Prophet Muhammad, who, you know, the Ummi problem, um, according to the traditional explanation, he did not know how to uh, read or write. I don't think this is um, historically correct, but this is an explanation, a traditional explanation. Now, there was another uh, element in creating the affinity between Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri uh, and the Prophet. And this I never read in a Muslim um, book. Uh, the use of the formula, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, which is always used for the Prophet Muhammad, the use of this formula in the dual form, sallallahu alayhi wa so that it can include not only the Prophet Muhammad, but also Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri. I mean, this is quite audacious in the Muslim tradition to do this. But many things have been done by Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri, as he's described by his followers, in order to bring him as closely as possible to the image of the uh, Prophet uh, Muhammad. Next, we turn to the other key protagonist of your uh, narrative, uh, and that's Muhammad Ahmad, and we move to a different setting, that of the Sudan. Um, and here we come closer to the modern period. Um, in this chapter, I was really interested in your reading of the discourses of Muhammad Ahmad on questions of law and ritual. Um, could you perhaps talk a bit about how did, you know, these discourses on law and ritual play an important part in terms of his claim uh, to be a Mahdi? And we see a slightly different emphasis, say, from Ibn Tumar earlier. Um, so I was wondering if you could focus on that aspect of his claim to be a okay. Mahdi. First of all, I would like to say that the appointment of the Sudanese Mahdi was the most elaborate of all appointments of my four Mahdis. Because uh, time and again, in the seven volumes of his uh, epistles, he describes how the Prophet Muhammad and the four righteous caliphs and 124,000 awliya all of them came in one afternoon to a ceremony in which uh, the Prophet Muhammad appointed Muhammad Ahmad uh, to be uh, the Mahdi. Uh, this is, this is, uh, these appointments are much more elaborate than the, than the appointments of any uh, other 
of these Mahdists are concerning um, the uh, law and the ritual. Um, he made, uh, Muhammad Ahmad made a great number of um, legal pronouncements, mainly concerning uh, moral issues and also concerning uh, the relationships between uh, men and women. I made some attempts, quite intensive attempts, to find out from where he took uh, his uh, rulings, but I was not successful. Uh, on many, um, on many uh, transgressions, uh, he imposes 27 lashes on the perpetrators, and I was not able to find in the Sharia books uh, this kind of punishment. Of course, everybody knows that the, uh, there are hudud, the 80 lashes and 40 lashes for a slave, etc. But I was not able to find the uh, number 27. I must uh, assume that this is his uh, innovation, in a way. He wouldn't like anybody to say that he did any innovations. But still, I, I don't have any, any other explanation for this. I also would like to mention that he produced a book of prayers, Rati, and he demanded that everybody studies this book and learns it by heart and so on. Now, there is um, uh, Muhammad Ahmad, in a certain sense, was very different from uh, the two previous Mahdis whom we discussed. The two previous Mahdis, Ibn Tumart and uh, Sayyid Muhammad Jampuri, lived under Muslim rule. Muhammad Ahmad in the Sudan lived under what was called then um, the Turco-Egyptian regime, and this regime was allied with the British. So he uh, was able very easily to um, define all his struggles against this uh, regime uh, as jihad. In the, um, in the writings about Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri, there is a lot of discussion whether Muslims can wage jihad against Kalima Guyan. Because, uh, of course, uh, Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri lived under a Muslim, uh, in a Muslim state, yes. Nevertheless, um, he did, uh, or uh, to be more exact, his successors, did uh, jihad against the government, and they discussed quite extensively the question whether this is permissible. But of uh, Muhammad Ahmad didn't have such a problem because of the alliance between the British and what was called the Turco-Egyptian regime. There was no problem in this, and uh, his jihad is quite natural. It doesn't need much uh, explanation. The next uh, chapter moves to the modern period and moves to South Asia, where you consider a number of different actors. Uh, and here, not all actors are claimants to being Mahdi's, but they have their own views on messianism and, and, and on, on, on uh, uh, I guess, uh, the whole 
question of the Mahdi. Um, I was wondering if for purposes of specificity, we can focus on two figures, two very different figures, but they both did similar interpretive things. One is Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, and second, uh, Abu Ala Maududi. And in both of those figures, I noticed that you show how they reread and reconfigured the classical tradition to make some very novel arguments. Uh, so I was wondering if you could briefly maybe take these two figures as your examples and speak a bit about how did they rework the classical tradition in the modern moment. Yes, so uh, about Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. Uh, in the beginning of my chapter on this, I quoted, I quoted a letter uh, in which Mirza Ghulam, ah, which Mirza Ghulam Ahmad sent uh, to the uh, British Queen. I suppose that the letter was never delivered uh, to the addressee. But, uh, it, but it reflects Mirza Ghulam Ahmad's views on this. And in this letter, he, um, he speaks about the classical Mahdi uh, figure, which he uh, describes as the bloody Mahdi. The letter is in English, so I will perhaps read a few sentences from it. Uh, he says, the Muslims of the old school expect a Mahdi who will be a descendant of Fatima, mother of Hussein, and the Masih, who in company with the Mahdi will wage a destructive war against the Kafirs. I have tried to uproot all such beliefs, exposing their falsity and absurdity. Such Mahdi is, of course, an imaginary being and a delusion. So, um, I mean, the Mahdi was not the main pugnacious figure in the apocalyptic drama. The main pugnacious figure was uh, Jesus. But this is how Mirza Ghulam Ahmad um, uh, writes. And then he speaks about himself. And he describes himself as a person who, with the power of arguments, will um, confute Christianity and will change um, uh, the world and uh, make Islam uh, to be, to be uh, a different religion from what it is uh, described in the classical uh, material. Uh, now this uh, has to be this has to be read in conjunction with Mirza Ghulam Ahmad's reformulation of the idea of jihad. Now in Mirza Ghulam Ahmad uh, jihad uh, depends on the conditions in which the Muslims live. In the early period, in the period of uh, the beginning, in the southern Islam, as it is called, in the beginning, Islam was in danger of physical extinction. And um, in those days, military jihad was um, permissible, even required. In the 19th century India, Islam was under a different kind of attack. 
it was uh, under attack by the Christian missionaries. It was not a physical attack, but it was an attack on Islam, on its um, prophet. Yes, there was a lot of defamation of the prophet Muhammad, and um, therefore the Muslims must respond in kind. In such a situation, military jihad is not required. What is required is a polemical jihad. And he devoted most of his activities to uh, polemics against the Christian missionaries, against mainstream uh, Muslims, in order to clarify this one important idea in his view, that in 19th century India, uh, there is no necessity for military jihad or for uh, opposition to British rule. What is necessary is to um, convince uh, everybody of the truth of Islam as a peaceful uh, religion. Now, to attain this, he needed to deviate from uh, from an important principle of classical Muslim exegesis, and this is the abrogation principle. Because, as everybody knows, I suppose, there are many um, verses in the Quran about jihad. Some of them are explained as opposing jihad completely. Some of them speak about defensive jihad only. And only in the later period of the revelation, uh, we have, um, uh, especially in Surah Tawbah, we have um, verses in which jihad is uh, permissible and even uh, required. Now, the classical exegesis of this was that the late verses, the the verses in Surah 9, um, mostly, uh, abrogated, nasahat, uh, the earlier verses which either deny jihad completely or speak only about defensive jihad. Now, in order to give another explanation of this variety of uh, ideas in the Quran, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad maintained that there is no internal nasq in the Quran. What we do have, whenever um, the idea of nasq is mentioned in the Quran, the meaning of it is not the uh, abrogation of earlier verses by later verses. The meaning is abrogation of previous religions by Islam. And if uh, we go along with this exposition, we can say that all verses concerning jihad are of equal value. There is no abrogation. The conclusion from this is that the Muslims should live according to verses which are compatible with the um, circumstances in which they live. If suddenly Islam would be militarily attacked, jihad would be okay. 
But in his period, Islam is not under military attack. It is under polemical attack. And therefore, they should respond in kind. And there are, of course, verses in the Quran um, which support um, uh, the polemics against members of other uh, religions. So this is what... Um, this is how Mirza Ghulam Ahmad reformulated the idea of jihad. And if you, you also asked about Abu Ala, uh, Abu Ala Maududi. Now, Abu Ala Maududi is uh, not like the other figures whom I described in the book. Because Abu Ala Maududi was not a messianic claimant himself, but he produced a theory of uh, the Mahdi. Now, the theory is, how to put it, it is an integration of the classical ideas and a very new uh, interpretation of the figure of the Mahdi. Now, Maududi is the person who most explicitly dissociated the Mahdi from the end of days. And he describes him as an effective political uh, leader who will be aware of all the modern sciences and modern thinking, and uh, he will lead the Muslims uh, to victory. But there is no, in Abu al-Ala Maududi thinking, as far as I can understand it, there is no expectation of the end of days whatsoever. Uh, the Mahdi will come. Maybe he will not uh, make a claim to be a Mahdi and um, uh, people will become aware of his status only after his great uh, successes. So um, uh, this is completely dissociated from the end of days. It is very interesting to note that the Mahdi is dissociated from the end of days and he is an effective political leader, but at the same time, Maududi preserved the traditional ideas about the coming of Jesus, about the um, uh, destruction of Judaism and Christianity, etc., etc. But um, uh, the Mahdi is transformed into a leader who is here uh, and now, and there are even some critical notes um, that he will not be um, compatible with the descriptions in the classical hadith. Uh, he will not have the bodily features in which he is described in classical hadith. So um, he is completely different from the classical uh, figure. Jesus is not so different. He miraculously descends in Damascus and he is doing the fighting against the Jews and killing the Dajjal and so on. So it is a composite picture 
in uh, Abul uh, Ala Maududi's works. And the, as I said, there is also another difference that as far as I know, uh, Maulana Maududi did not uh, claim to be a Mahdi uh, himself. So as a final, uh, as a final substantive question, uh, Yonan, I was wondering if you can sum up some of the discussion and analysis conducted in this book by uh, having you talk about some of the overlapping features of these different Mahdi's, some of the sort of in the final conclusion, you talk about some of the overlapping sort of features that we see, and also what would be perhaps the one take-home point or one conclusion that you really would like readers to take from this book, after reading this book. Okay, so uh, what would I say about, uh, I, I would now attempt to uh, compare these four uh, figures with each other, and there are various ways in which we can make uh, this uh, comparison. So, first of all, uh, we have two Mahdi's, which rebelled against an existing Muslim rule. These are Ibn Tumart and uh, Sayyid Muhammad uh, Jompuri. They operated in uh, the medieval period and uh, they uh, rebelled against an existing uh, Muslim uh, dynasty. Now, Muhammad Ahmad, the Sudanese Mahdi, uh, was different because the uh, rule against which he rebelled was in alliance uh, with the British. The three of them had political aspirations. Ibn Tumart, of course, established a dynasty which existed for about 140 years. Um, Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri did not was not very successful in the political sense and didn't succeed in establishing um, the polity. Um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was of a completely different character because Mirza Ghulam Ahmad and the Ahmadi movements after him never had any political aspirations. Now, he directed most of his struggle against the British missionaries, but didn't make any struggle against the British rule in India. He um, was more or less happy with the British rule, and he was happy because of one main reason, because the British didn't hinder his um, religious uh, Dawa. They were not interested uh, in the two types of prophecy, the legislative prophecy versus non-legislative prophecy. They didn't mind his claim to be a prophet in addition to being a Mahdi. So he battled against the missionaries, but not against the uh, British, uh, British rule. Now, I would like to speak also about a feature which is common to almost to, to all of them, though with some variations. And this is the exclusivity. 
the exclusivity, I mean that uh, the four figures, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed in a, in a different way, but certainly the three figures argued that whoever does not join their movements and doesn't accept their messianic claims is an infidel. So, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad was a bit different because in the beginning of his career, he uh, didn't speak along these lines. And he said that whoever says the Kalima is a Muslim. But later, when his self-confidence, I suppose, grew, he also reached uh, the stage of exclusivity in which he excommunicated, excommunicated everybody who didn't join his movement. There is some discussion who did the first move because the ulama, the mainstream ulama, of course, excommunicated the Ahmadis. But I wasn't able to find uh, exactly the timeline of this. Who was the first? I have the impression that the mainstream ulama were uh, the first. Now, um, uh, another um, feature which I would like to discuss is the demand of um, most of these people to do hijra. Now, of course, hijra is a well-known concept in Islamic history, but here it has a, um, an additional meaning. The movements which were political, in addition of being ideological, needed to uh, recruit a large fighting force. And therefore, the hijra, the camp of the Mahdi, was essential for building uh, the movement. And therefore, um, Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri had perhaps the most elaborate, the most elaborate ideas about the necessity of hijra. And he saw hijra not only as a physical move from uh, one's uh, regular habitat to the camp of the Mahdi, but also an emotional move, by which he meant the total dissociation of the uh, members of the movement from their biological family, uh, if this family didn't join the movement. But the others also demanded hijra. Muhammad Ahmad demanded hijra in the Sudan, uh, and uh, Ibn Tum, in Ibn Tumar it is less pronounced, but he also, of course, amassed um, military, uh, a military uh, force. And you cannot do this without a hijra uh, to the camp. I would also like to say a few things about the inspiration of these four figures. The um, thinking of Sayyid Muhammad Jompuri and of the Sudanese Mahdi are very much influenced by Sufi ideas, especially 
the idea of very extreme asceticism, very extreme asceticism. And Sayyid Muhammad Jampuri has probably the most elaborate discussion uh, of what this extreme asceticism uh, is. Uh, in Ibn Tumart, the main source of inspiration is uh, theology. Uh, and we spoke about the anthropomorphism and so on. In Ghulam Ahmad, it is very complicated to say what the, what the inspirational sources are. But I think that uh, concerning the um, prophetic claim of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the inspiration is of various figures from Islamic history, mainly uh, the Sufi thinker um, Hakim Tirmizi and Ibn al-Arabi. Now, the Ahmadis don't like when I uh, didn't like when I said this in my book on the Ahmadis, but I think there is no way to explain in another way the... Um, theory according to which in the Islamic tradition there were two kinds of prophets, legislative prophets on the one hand and uh, non-legislative prophets on the other hand. And when um, the Muslims say, according to the Ahmadis, that the Prophet Muhammad was the last prophet, they mean that he was the last of the legislative prophets. But non-legislative prophets could appear in the Muslim community um, whenever Allah chooses to send them. Now, this is, um, this is the reason because of which uh, the Ahmadis were excluded from Islam, both by the Pakistani parliament and by various Islamic international uh, associations. Now, I would like also to say that there is one uh, important feature in the Mahdist uh, movement. I have the impression that they are the precursors, and I speak here on about the three movements with the exception of the Ahmadis who are completely different. They are the precursors of the radical Muslim movements whom we see in the 20th and the 21st uh, centuries. And there are so many uh, similar features between, say, um, the insistence of Ibn Tumar on the literal, literal application of the Sharia, the same uh, goes for um, the Sudanese Mahdi, um, and this this literal application of the Sharia is a hallmark of some of the um, contemporary radical um, radical movements in uh, Islam. Um, this is uh, what I would say uh, in general. And uh, if there is another question, I am happy to. Okay. Terrific. Uh, 
Messianic Ideas and Movements in Sunni Islam by Professor Johannan Friedman, uh, published by One World Academic Press in 2022. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Friedman, uh, for your time, for your generous time, and for writing this incredible book that I'm sure will spark many uh, conversations. Um, it has this, your signature uh, style of encyclopedic analysis of multiple texts, etc. In fact, why don't I end on that question? It might be useful for students of Islam, uh, upcoming especially. Uh, how, do you, how do you scan such an encyclopedic um, variety and range of texts? This is in all your books, the Tolerance book, the Prophecy Continuous book, this one as well. There's a range of pre-modern, modern text, Arabic, Persian, Urdu. Uh, uh, is there any kind of a logistically, how do you, how do you go about managing such a rich and extensive oh, repertoire yeah. of text? How do you do this? When I finished the, the last book, I looked at the contract which I signed. And the contract was signed in 2002. So this is 20 years of work. I am not saying that I worked only on this because I have several articles during this period. But you see, the secret is to live long. <laughs> <laughs> if you live long, uh, then you will have time to, um, to enlarge your, to, to do extensive reading. And I am an obsessive reader of Islamic texts. And I am, I am beyond my 86 year and I feel well and I am still working. So, uh, you know, I am now doing, I am now doing an article. I am trying to analyze the uh, minutes of the exclusion of the Ahmadis from Islam in the Pakistani parliament. This now, you know, I wrote, when I wrote the book, um, I didn't believe that I will live long enough to see this, uh, these minutes open, but they are open. And I will tell you something about it, about the minutes. This is very strange. Now, you know that the Pakistani parliament discussed this issue of the Ahmadis for three months. And there are about 2,500 pages of minutes, which is very unique, I suppose. But there is one problem. The shorthand, the, the person who wrote the shorthand didn't know Arabic. And so whenever one of the protagonists mentioned a Quranic verse or a Hadith, the text says, Age Arabi, but there is nothing. <laughs> this is so I don't know whether I will be able to guess the traditions which were quoted there. Maybe it is not possible to, the, to do the analysis at all because there is no Arabic, only Urdu and English. So I will see whether I can guess all this. Wonderful. We look forward to that as well. Thank you so much for your time, Fresh Friedman. Thank you. Thank you very much. All the best. So this was my conversation with Professor Johannan Friedman about his wonderful new book, Messianic Ideas and Movements in Sunni Islam. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. And I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, NBIS. 
Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareem, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.